Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of Polite Politics. We have a special guest, a very special guest joining us on this edition of Polite Politics. That guest is none other than my twin sister, Rachel Niederhofer. Rachel Niederhofer making her Polite Politics debut. Rachel, how are you? Oh my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> I am honored to be here and I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm doing well. I'm out here in sunny Los Angeles. So it's a little earlier in the morning for me <laughs> than it is for you, but I'm excited to uh, get chatting. Absolutely. This will be a, a, a nicer, a little, a little more intimate conversation uh, than normal and, and definitely hope that you'll be able to provide our listeners with some of what is going on out there in sunny California, as you said. Yeah, I'm sure all of your listeners are just dying to know what's going on in California. So don't worry, I'm here to provide that perspective. A little bit of the outside deep sea perspective, at least. Uh, do want to take a moment to note that uh, our thoughts are with uh, Jenny Tayer right now. Uh, it's kind of a, a tough time in her family right now, unable to uh, to be with us on this podcast. So wanted to definitely take a moment to to say that our thoughts uh, and prayers are, are with her during a tough time for her family. And want to then kind of transition into the COVID-19 discussion. Uh, Rachel, obviously now we are above 65,000 Americans that have passed away from COVID-19. And certainly that is not going to, to go down. The numbers obviously continuing to rise. Because we haven't talked as much about what the situation is going like in California, I believe Gavin Newsom said that he might be in the coming days discussing some kind of reopening for the state. What are those discussions like out there on the West Coast? Man, it's it's <laughs> it's a mess. Um, but I will say that I do feel really proud to live in California right now, I have to say, especially being from Georgia, where things are just so incredibly drastically different. I feel really proud to be living in California right now. I feel really proud of the way that California has handled it. Gavin Newsom has released or he's at least talked about like a, a four-stage process of opening. I think he's calling it the four phases. I think it's sort of the, a sort of a, a widely talked about way of going about it. Um, but he's he's acknowledged pretty openly that it's going to be a very, very slow process opening things back up. And then the mayor of Los Angeles has said, you know, we are supposed to be sheltering at home until May 15th, and he hasn't confirmed whether he's going to extend that, but he has said sheltering at home may end on May 15th, but people should not expect for things to start reopening widely anytime soon. Um, certainly not like they have done in Georgia or like there are plans to do in other, in other states. It definitely gets me thinking, you know, like if California isn't opening, but let's just say you know, Las Vegas opens, what does that mean for us? And how how is that going to work? I really wonder how the policies of neighboring states affect each other during all of this. We certainly know from, from our experience, a lot of golf courses are, are now uh, open. I believe there are only four states that currently have their golf courses closed. And uh, we know one of our family members uh, went from Maryland to Virginia to go play golf. But golf is a little bit different in one of those sports that you don't even have to touch anyone 
or interact with anybody can be done in a, in a way that is safe for social distancing. One of the big things that I just read for California is TPC Harding Park, which is a public course in San Francisco, uh, which will be hosting the PGA Championship, or at least is scheduled to host the PGA Championship this year, will be opening on May the 4th. So I want to take this time to say May the 4th be with you, Rachel. Oh my god. <laughs> May the 4th be with all of you. Wow, 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 wow. Did you like just bring up that story about the golf course so that you could say May the 4th be with you? <laughs> no, but I just found it to be a very, very nice tie-in. Uh, we can have a Star Wars discussion later. That's that's for another podcast. Yeah, we do a whole, whole separate thing on that. So you, you mentioned Eric Garcetti, the mayor of LA, and I'd like to get a sense from you about the way that your friends are feeling because there are a number of people who we've talked to, you and I both, that understand the importance of social distancing, the importance of limiting spread and taking steps to protect themselves and protect others. But at the same time, we also know people that really do need to get back to work because they have themselves and their families to take care of and feed. You know, what are you hearing? You know, are, are, do you feel and, and have you heard those kinds of inner conflict uh, out where you are? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Here in LA, I think the public perception and the public opinion, at least within my friend group, of Eric Garcetti is very positive. We all feel like he's handled this really well at as best he could. Um, testing in LA just became free for everyone, no matter what. You don't even have to have any symptoms to go get tested. I think we're the first city in the country to do that. And we all feel really proud of that. Meanwhile, you know, we're from Atlanta. I'm still in touch with a lot of people who are in Atlanta. And I have friends in Atlanta who are desperate to get back to work. And it's not that they're being, you know, ignorant or selfish. I feel like there are a lot of people who are like, oh, you want the quarantine to end? That's so ignorant. That's so selfish of you. What about your grandparents and things like that? And the thing is, like, some people are very much struggling during all of this. A friend of mine who's a bartender in Atlanta, she doesn't qualify for unemployment. She is a single mother. If this continues, she's going to lose her apartment. She needs to get back to work. And it's not really her fault necessarily that she's in that position. I wish that the government would provide people like her more assistance so that they could stay home for longer so that this would all be over sooner. And, you know, I work in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles, and a lot of my friends in entertainment are either still employed and working from home, or they're receiving unemployment. I myself am self-employed. I was not able to file for unemployment until just this week. But they created a whole new program for people who are unemployed, uh, for people who are self-employed and for people who are independent contractors so that we could file for unemployment. And I feel very fortunate for that. Um, I just know that this is such a difficult time for a lot of people. And there are a lot of people who want all of this to end, not because they want to go to the beach like the protesters in the OC, but because financially they are not okay. And I feel for them. So speaking about those protests that you mentioned at the Orange County beaches, we saw similar protests, very different in nature, in Michigan in the State House, where we saw civil disobedience in, in some ways, but then also people armed with weapons enter 
the state house and tell the governor of Michigan that she needed to reopen the state. In doing so, is this kind of a message that will backfire? Certainly, they have not been portrayed well in the media. But how do you think this plays out? It certainly did not look like Governor Whitmer was backing down in any way. I don't think that any protests of that nature are actually going to affect change in the governor's decisions. I would certainly hope that they wouldn't. And I can't imagine that it actually gets their message across in a in a moving and meaningful way. It's also incredibly upsetting that so many people are willing to put themselves in harm's way, are willing to put healthcare workers who are often on the other side of the protest in harm's way. It's it's upsetting for a number of reasons, but I know that one reason it's upsetting for myself and for a lot of my friends is there is a racial component to it. You see mass amounts of primarily white people with firearms storming government buildings and absolutely nothing is being done in terms of force, which is good. Force should not be taken. But, you know, there there is a conversation happening between myself and my friends about how, you know, if there were black protesters armed with weapons, they it would certainly, A, not have gotten this far. It would certainly be spoken about differently in the media. And that's frustrating. And it's frustrating because it's almost a conversation that can't even really be happening right now because the conversation that must be happening right now is about the coronavirus and is about these protests that are taking place right now. And I do completely understand that. But it's just a frustrating fact about our country that these two things are would be handled very different ways. So I think certainly there's there's something to be said about the racial makeup of, of whether or not it was a different kind of demographic of people, a, a mix of people, and how that would be handled. But I do want to kind of touch on it a different point that I think is underlying some of this, which we had talked about before the podcast. For these people that go and protest in public or storm a state house or do these kinds of things where they are protesting publicly and somewhat flaunting these notions of social distancing because they are, as many people say, they are desperate to get back and and I've raised a notion of something that the economist Stephen Moore of Heritage Foundation has raised before, which is that for every point of unemployment, there are 10,000 deaths. What he's worried about is, as the unemployment continues to rise, is that people will die from what he called economic deprivation and hopelessness. So there certainly is, as you said, when we talked about you know our friend, a mutual friend that we, we know from Atlanta, that must get to work or receive some kind of unemployment or some kind of assistance lest she lose her apartment and not have a place for her and her child to live. At the same time, when you see these people that are doing these protests, those are people that they have neighbors, they have friends, they have family, and those people know that they are doing these things. When this is all over, how do we go back, and, and are these people treated any differently? Is there a stigma then attached to these people? Is there a long-lasting memory? Do we just kind of return to life as normal, or do you see that becoming a sense of inner tension in families, in friend groups, in communities? Yeah, I, I was actually thinking about this uh, a lot yesterday. You know, in a way, it actually reminds me a little bit of what happened after the 2016 election. 
people learn things about their, I, I certainly don't think that the effects are going to be quite as strong, but people learn things about their friends and their families and their coworkers that they just can't unknow. People either voted for the president or they didn't vote at all or they voted third party or they voted for Hillary Clinton and, and people can't just unknow that. And it genuinely affected relationships and friendships and family in a way that not much more before it really had, at least not that I can recall. And I wonder if we're going to see anything similar here. I'm not sure how much of it we are going to see, but I I don't, you know, I don't think that people will be cutting people out of their lives because of this, but I I do see already people disconnecting from those they disagree with, you know, people unfriending people who are posting things on Facebook about, you know, oh, this is silly and is social distancing really working and things like that. And in the way that disconnecting didn't help close any divide in 2016 or 2017 or since then, I, I don't think it's going to close any divide now. And it's upsetting, especially because in a similar way, the people who are saying social distancing isn't working and things like that now are denying science in a way that some people in the 2016 were denying in the 2016 election were denying facts and things like that. Like I definitely see a connection. I'm not saying that every single person who is against social distancing now voted for President Trump. I'm not saying that. But you can see some links there. And yeah, I, I definitely wonder what this is going to look like for us all after after it's over, whatever it's over really even means. I don't think any of us even really know. Interestingly, and I think there's part of that that's correct, is that certainly it changed the perception of many people the election did in 2016 and that did end friendships uh, i know that it, it strained families and do you i mean do you see you said you know you don't see people maybe cutting the uh, people out of their lives so do you think that friendships will end over over such a thing especially for people that are maybe you know on the frontline uh, workers such as as people that are nurses or doctors I think there are degrees to it i have a friend who's a nurse and she knows people who are you know, going and hanging out with their friends. They're not protesting, but they're going and they're hanging out with their friends. And as a nurse, she is on the front lines and she has openly told them, please don't do this. You know, we have a cousin who works in an ICU in Pennsylvania and he told us some harrowing stories about how his own colleagues are on ventilators in his own hospital, about how he had to perform CPR on his own colleague and that colleague didn't survive. These are horrifying stories. I mean, I I cannot even imagine the trauma that so many healthcare workers in America are going through right now. An emergency room doctor, I can't remember what state she was in, an emergency room doctor recently killed herself. The doctor, I believe, was in New York and then traveled to Virginia uh, with family and then committed suicide there. I mean, the, the trauma that healthcare workers are experiencing right now is immense. And so when they say to their friends, the best thing you can do to help me right now is stay home, is don't 
go over to your friends' houses. Don't form what you think is a responsible isolation cell because it's not responsible. Trust me. I know. And then those people say, ah, yes, but I think I know better. Or, ah, yes, but I think it's worth the risk. You know, is that going to be enough for people like that to say, well, we can't be friends anymore? I don't know. But I think it's definitely going to make them look at people in a different way after this. I, I don't know what is going to be the breaking point for people of saying, oh, we can't be friends anymore. That line exists differently for different people. But like I said, we're just not going to be able to unknow that certain people chose to behave in certain ways during all of this. I don't know what role kind of politics plays within it you know whether or not there is certainly i think more urgency i think to open up economies and reopen ways of life i think in reopening i think while doing so safely is a good thing allowing people to at least leave their house to be able to say i am leaving for a purpose to go do something and allowing them the ability to make those connections in person that they really haven't had in some time. Now, that being said, I think it's really good for restaurants to continue as they were kind of in the early stages doing carry-out delivery and things like that, where you could perhaps drop something off at the door and then from across the street maybe say, you know, enjoy your meal or something like that, where hopefully we can do that. Now, restaurants that are operating at 25 to 50% capacity most restaurants exist on thin margins as it is. It will be very, very tough for many of them to stay afloat. One of the best sushi places in D.C., I would say possibly the country, a place called Sushi Taro, has decided that they will no longer be dine-in. That is moving forward. So that's a decision that they have made, and they're now looking to the future in a post-COVID-19 pandemic world, as you said, whenever that is. Speaking about the politics and, and whether there is kind of that widening divide that exists between people that are, are more intent on continuing to shelter in place and those that would rather get out and, and create more reopening, I do want to touch on some allegations from Tara Reid that have gotten much wider attention. Now, some people have accused the media of not playing this as much, and, and I think there is some validity to that because— there were places like the Washington Post, Politico, and the New York Times, and other places were certainly giving this coverage. And there were interviews that this woman, Tara Reid, a uh, former staffer of Joe Biden back when he was a senator, they were covering it, but it was not being covered as much by CNN, by MSNBC, and so those are definitely considered mainstream media outlets, and so it was not reaching millions and millions of people through those mediums. Not only that, but... There have definitely been some who feel that the New York Times had the story before Bernie dropped out of the race. And they feel that obviously had the story been released before Bernie dropped out of the race, you know, who knows how it might have affected things. I don't know how much stock I place in that, especially since the primary had reached the point it had reached and then a pandemic happened. I think voting was already going to be affected so strongly. But the fact remains that there are a lot of Bernie supporters who I'm sure believe that to be true, and I really don't think it helps the situation at all. Former Vice President Joe Biden went on Morning Joe on Friday, and Mika Brzezinski grilled him, and there were 
these allegations she asked him about. And to be clear, the allegations are that uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, back when he was a senator, uh, used his fingers to uh, penetrate uh, Tara Reid in a, a hallway in the Senate, and that is what she is claiming. Now, many different women that are potential vice presidential candidates have kind of been lined up and defended the vice president. The vice president's position has been that this allegation is untrue. He told the National Archives, which hold many documents for the Senate, that the archives should release any and all such records. But there is a bit of confusion, it seems, because they were saying that some of those are housed in the University of Delaware, and Biden is saying that, in fact, they are housed in the national, kind of these national archives. And so people are saying, well, why don't you release the University of Delaware papers? Those are conversations with foreign officials, dignitaries, and other things as part of his record of public service that he believes would be fodder during such a campaign. My question to you, Rachel, is do you feel like by saying have at all of the records, please produce anything from my personnel records that could prove any such complaint exists or prove that it doesn't exist while also hiding or shielding his University of Delaware records, do you feel like he is perhaps opening himself up to a line of attack that he does have something to hide? Oof. I mean, I think I think as soon as a woman makes an allegation about a politician and that politician denies it, which they nearly always do, immediately people say, ah, he has something to hide. Some people. Some people say, oh, I believe him. She's lying. And other people say, oh, I believe her. I believe any woman who comes forward. And then there's everybody in between. I mean, situations like this are terrible because no women deserve to experience what Tara Reid says that she has experienced. And I have to say, as a liberal, personally, this is a mess. And I absolutely hate it. It complicates everything. I wasn't excited about Biden as a candidate before this. And I'm not excited about him now. And I know that there are so many friends that I have who are sexual assault survivors who are not excited at the prospect of voting for someone accused of sexual assault. They're just not. And I don't blame them. And it's a really terrible situation. Not only that, I do just have to add, you know, Mika, Mika handled the interview with Biden on her own. Her partner, Joe, wasn't there. And I just don't really love the message that's getting sent that it's on women to discuss this. It's on women to deal with this and to sort of, you know, figure out, to investigate this. Obviously, you're talking about it, and I appreciate that. But I think a lot of men feel that it's sort of up to women to decide how they feel about it. And and then on top of that, you know, it's very interesting to see how potential vice presidential candidates have responded to this. For me, I wonder how this complicates his search for a vice president. You know, he guaranteed he'd be choosing a woman. Do potential candidates now maybe not want to be tied to them? I mean, this could potentially, depending on how this shakes out, for lack of a better term, this could potentially threaten 
a woman's future presidential run. This could be weaponized against her. It certainly doesn't seem that way. Stacey Abrams, Amy Klobuchar, and many other women who are seen as potential vice presidential picks have all come out in support of Joe Biden. So certainly it doesn't seem to be having an issue for them. It doesn't seem that way now, but depending on how the story shifts, depending on how public perception shifts, depending on what information comes to light, as you were asking earlier, you know, does he have something to hide? Do people believe he has something to hide? Depending on what information comes to light, it could turn into a threat to a woman's presidential run. We just don't know. And I want I believe women when they say that they are attacked. I believe women. Tara Reid came forward to several friends and family members at the time of the assault. They have since come forward now and said that she told them about it and that they believe her. And it's very interesting to hear Joe Biden speak about it because he says all in one breath, this didn't happen, but we should believe women. It's very interesting. I... I don't really know entirely what to what to do with it. I think a lot of liberals don't know what to do with it. Liberals are very used to being on a high horse, really, and saying, "Oh, President Trump, he was he was accused of sexually assaulting, you know, 20 women, and the Republicans don't even care. How dare they?" And now, here's Joe Biden being accused of assaulting one woman, and a lot of them are saying, "Well, he's our candidate though, so you know, what are we going to do? It's definitely an interesting situation. And certainly Joe Biden has a history of being inappropriate in terms of uh, touching and with uh, with women and being just inappropriate in general. Generally, obviously, this sexual assault allegation then goes beyond the pale. You know, as, as you said, it does muddy the waters a bit because I think Democrats certainly had planned to attack the president on the way that he treats women. And now Joe Biden has something that the president could say, well, you're accusing me of this, look at who I'm running against. And that was an effect and a a tactic that he used incredibly well and to incredible effect against Hillary Clinton when she ran against him in 2016. So it certainly does seem to weaken Joe Biden as he runs for president. As we always do, Rachel, we have our uplifting story of the week. And I think this will be one that brings a smile to your and everyone's faces. So I can't wait. It's a good story. There was a young Italian student that was trapped in Spain. She had been living in the Spanish city of Bilbao as part of a European language studies course. 22-year-old Giada Colalto, as I had said, was living in Bilbao, and then the pandemic happened, and so she decided to go back to Italy. So she managed to purchase this plane ticket from Madrid to Paris to Rome, then to Venice. However, the Italian government had already implemented these incredibly harsh quarantine measures. So what happened is now she was stranded in Madrid, couldn't get back to Bilbao. So a friend of hers from Bilbao contacted this taxi driver. He was a 22-year-old man named Kepa Amentegi. And what ends up happening is he drove nine hours from Bilbao to Madrid and back. So what happens then, they're in Bilbao. And she was informed that her apartment was no longer available. So now she's stuck in Bilbao, unable to get back to Venice. So what ends up happening is she and Keppa, they wonder if it's possible to simply drive 1,500 kilometers. This is 900 miles 
all the way back to Venice. And so they called the local authorities, and as incredible as it may seem, they got all of the necessary authorizations. So she was allowed since she was traveling back home, and he was allowed because of a taxi driver, and it was allowed for his work. He asked nothing in return for the 3,000-kilometer round trip. Again, that's 1,800 miles. So when he brought her back to uh, Montebello, he returned home the following day with a towering tote bag of treats from the region, grappa wine, and chocolate. So just an incredible story. Again, in 1800, and that's not to mention the fact that he picked her up from Madrid and and took her back to Bilbao, a nine-hour round trip there. 1800 miles there and back and didn't ask for anything in return. So an absolutely incredible story of a young Spanish taxicab driver helping out a young Italian student who had been uh, studying in Bilbao. So pretty incredible story there. Rachel, as we finish up, as we always do, with our final thoughts for the week. Do you have any final thoughts on the week that was and the week to come? I feel a bit like there's so much to say and at the same time nothing to say at all, which of course is not good when you're hosting a podcast. Obviously you have to say something. But what I mean by that is just that this is an incredible time that we're all going through. And I think to so many people, it feels so immense. And a lot of people are dealing with that in very different ways. You know, these protesters who want things to open back up, for some of them, I can certainly understand that. But when they're not wearing masks, you know, do they not know that their mask protects me and my mask protects them? They either don't know or they don't care. And they're showing a blatant disregard for public safety in their protests. So it's it's a frustrating time. I know that protesting is an American right, and I can respect that. But for them to use that right to protest this, it's a frustrating time. And certainly in the election, it's a difficult time. Also, I have to say, one thing I was thinking about is, you know, back in February... I I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, the election is just going to dominate the news cycle from now to November and it's going to be eat, sleep and breathe election. And, you know, at that time, we sort of knew that it was going to be President Trump versus Vice President Biden. And I wasn't really excited at the prospect of that 24 hour news coverage. And I'm barely thinking about the election at all because the pandemic has really superseded it in the minds of a lot of people. It's very interesting, and I personally am interested to see how that progresses going forward, how much focus the election is really going to take moving forward, especially as we get closer and closer to November, seeing how social distancing guidelines are altered by then. This past week, I don't know why, but during this pandemic, this one I think felt longer than the others did. So I'm looking forward to seeing whether that holds or whether that was just a, a product of a long work week for me or others. But it seemed like many other people that I talked to said there was something different about that that past week. And hopefully we have, again, a, a wonderful week. I know we, May 4th is going to create a lot of Star Wars memes and GIFs and a lot of other things as people as people have that Cinco de Mayo. Which falls on a Tuesday. I know that a lot of people will be celebrating Taco Tuesday on Cinco de Mayo. I hope that people celebrate Cinco de Mayo respectfully. Respectfully and responsibly, most importantly. (laughs) Yes, yes, definitely be careful about the number of margaritas that you drink at home, everybody. This coming week, 
how will the Trump administration react? We had Kaylee McEnany's first uh, press conference briefing, so be interested to see how often she briefs the press. I'm very interested to see her performance. She's promised in her very first press conference never to lie. And I am really, dare I say, looking forward to seeing how she handles the press conferences. We haven't had press briefings from the press secretary in quite a while. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how she does. In addition to that, we have the Senate returning to the Capitol. So I think when we have the Senate coming back and the um, a very kind of nice show of cooperation and togetherness, we had both Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi say that they will not kind of take up a lot of the testing. What they want to do is make sure that those tests that could have gone to testing members of Congress go instead to workers on the front lines, the doctors and nurses and people like that who need it the most and who it's most important for. So certainly nice to to see that kind of level of cooperation, although they said that people in the Senate will be tested only if they have severe symptoms. And so we will see if the House comes back uh, much later, but we do know that the Senate will be returning to uh, to normal kind of business this week, so it'll be nice to have the Senate back in town so we can, again, have kind of legislators where they typically work and legislate from, so it'll be kind of interesting. Rachel, thank you again for making your polite politics debut. It has been a, a just an absolute pleasure to have you. Noah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure doing this with you. Absolutely. And I uh, want to thank y'all for listening in and hope y'all have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to Polite Politics. We'll catch you next time.